0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Friday, November the 18th, 2022. It's been a great week. I spent the first part of the week at the Techonomy Conference in Sonoma in Northern California. There's one interesting incident uh, at Techonomy, or several interesting incidents, I guess. Uh, There's an event about how innovation must save the world. And of course, in particular, technological innovation. That's what we all want. We don't seem to be getting enough of it. And at one point, there was a senior executive from Amazon who will remain nameless, who was speaking about the value of artificial intelligence in saving the world and as it happened the day he was speaking there was also a press announcement that Amazon was laying off 10,000 people. I'm not sure if that necessarily uh, helps save the world and the Amazon CEO um, uh, noted that uh, the job cuts are going to roll into next year as well. Of course Many people, not just me, made the connection between Amazon's job cuts and their pioneering efforts on the artificial intelligence front. Uh, AI is a very controversial subject when it comes to saving the world, making the world a better place, the role of robots. We've done a number of shows on it. One man has given a great deal of thought to how AI can make the world a better place and how we can trust it more, is my guest today, Gary Marcus. He's the author amongst many things, or the co-author of Rebooting AI, Building Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust. And I'm thrilled that Gary is joining us today. Uh, Gary, this idea of trusting AI, what do you mean by it? AI isn't a person, so how can we trust it more or less?
1: Well, it's not a person, but it it does things for people. And you would like for it to do the things that you ask it to do. Um, And, uh, you know, a good example from this very week is is a new system called Galactica. You can type in things like write a Wikipedia of Gary Marcus, and you'd like for it to give you truth about Gary Marcus, but instead it makes stuff up or someone... uh, had it write something about Elon Musk and it said that Elon Musk died in a car crash in 2018. Now that's directly contradicted by things in its data set, Like it probably talks about Elon Musk in 2021. I don't know how far its database goes out, but it, it's contradicting things in this database. So you would at the very least expect that an AI would be consistent with the things that it should be able to easily find in the web. Another example is if you have a driverless car um, you would like to trust that it won't run into stopped vehicles and potentially kill you. But the current AI that we have is not good enough to do that. So trust is about having the systems do what we expect them to do uh, and not you know, lead to injury or misinformation and so forth.
0: Is this what people call, Gary, um, generative AI? Perhaps the best generative AI product at the moment is DALI, this artificial intelligence engine that in theory at least, turns all of us into artists. There's a there's a boom in this, to put it mildly, in Silicon Valley and the tech crowd. You're not just a writer, but also a, a very successful entrepreneur, started a number of interesting tech companies. Uh, is generative AI essentially where AI is right now?
1: Well, generative AI is just one technique, but it's, it's a Um, or or set of techniques, but it's very popular right now. DALI is definitely a popular version of it. These large language models are also uh, technically generative AI. Um, Not every AI technique is is what we call generative AI. So the navigation system that you use in your car to bring you from point A to point B is not a a generative AI system, but it is an AI system. So it's a subset of AI, but it's certainly the stuff that's popular, that's getting well-funded right now. Um, that most people are are talking about, and I saw that you had a headline from an article that was describing a um, a lecture or a dialogue, really, that I had with Noam Chomsky uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we certainly talked about generative AI there. And uh, I think Jeremy Kahn's headline is is about right. Generative AI is fun; it's really cool to make up pretty pictures and stuff like that. But it doesn't mean that it's teaching us anything about human intelligence. And it doesn't mean that we are getting close to artificial intelligence that we can count on, that we can trust, that we can rely rely upon. So there's a difference between doing something that's fun, like you tell a system, hey, draw a picture of, I don't know, somebody going down a ski slope uh, with holding an umbrella. And you might get that. But you know that's fun. If you wanted to count on such a system, you'd probably be out of luck. Those systems don't understand languages as, as well as uh, the, the producers of those systems pretend. I, I just uh, published some work on that um, showing, for example, they don't understand the difference between an active sentence and a passive sentence. They don't understand if you leave words out of the sentence what you might mean, where a human uh, would understand perfectly well. Um, they generally don't ha- have a a mastery of what we call compositionality, of understanding the meaning of a whole in terms of its parts. So there's a lot of illusion essentially going on in the AI of today. And um, it's, it's not as powerful, I think, as most people pretend. And that became very clear that earlier this week when Meta AI briefly released this thing called Galactica that supposedly was supposed to help people write scientific articles. And in fact, was kind of a train wreck. It was so bad that after a day and a half, they took it down. They had a free demo. And so many people, including me, I think I was one of the, the leaders in, in denouncing it. Um, so many of us pointed out that how weak the AI was, that Meta was eventually embarrassed and took it down.
0: Yeah, I thought I have to admit, I'm I thought the same about Dali playing around with it. Um, you've been quite critical of some senior AI execs who talk about AI now being game over. What what do you make, Gary, of the current landscape in the AI economy, dominated by companies like OpenAI <laughs> and DeepMind? Um, are these companies uh, going to, are they close to making AI? And I'm quoting from the DeepMind site, one of humanity's most useful inventions, or are they bumping around in the dark still? You seem to be suggesting that they're not Not they, but we collectively or you collectively as the AI community, you're not very far along in terms of the narrative of making AI a really useful technology for humanity.
1: Well, the first thing I would do is I would distinguish between what some people call AI and AGI, artificial general intelligence. So artificial general intelligence would be like the Star Trek computer. You could pose any question to it, any reasonable question and expect a a truthful and, and correct and and well-computed answer. And we don't have that now. What we have is narrow AI. So we have specialists for particular problems. We have, for example, um, from DeepMind, uh, uh, world-class Go players that can beat any human being in Go. Um, But the same Go player is not gonna be able to think about the weather, is not gonna be able to understand the stock market, it's not gonna be able to give a good lecture, et cetera. So it just does one thing and does it well. And in some cases, we're able to do that now Um, Another one of their claims to fame is protein folding, and they have something that's very impressive there. And there are other things where everybody has struggled. So there have been about $100 billion invested in driverless cars, which is still narrow AI, a single thing, drive me from point A to point B, um, ideally regardless of the weather and and whatever location I want to go. And people have put in the $100 billion, and we don't have a solution even to that narrow problem. And there's some question as to whether you can solve that as a narrow problem, or whether you might actually need something closer to general intelligence, even to do something as elementary as driving. Um, and then, what you about get the, to the broader, kind
0: of- um, Gary, the broader economic question? We had Margaret Mitchell on the show recently, a woman who got fired, a senior, exec technologist at Google in their AI group who got fired for being critical of them. Um, Deep Mind is, of course, owned by Google. Um, a Open AI is anything but open. Um, Can we trust these large tech companies? Do you think? I mean, you're an entrepreneur as well Uh, with AI or do we need more public investment and public scrutiny of this evolving field?
1: I don't think we should particularly trust them. They're they're large companies. They're there to make a profit. Um, Taking Google as an example, they've been putting out a lot of press releases saying we've solved this or that problem, but they won't put their stuff out for public inspection. And that's usually a bad sign. Or to take OpenAI, at first they wouldn't release DALI, they wouldn't let people like me play with it. Um, And when they did eventually release it, people like me found out that there was a lot of problems. And so there's often a kind of um, marketing saying, hey, we've made all this progress. And then you look deeply and and that progress is not really there. And it's not in their interest to keep us uh, abreast of what's going on. They they want to recruit for the best talent by saying they have the best software, they want to... Be able to, you know, raise the highest valuations. Um, OpenAI is is raising money, um, for the company right now, or, or you know, they want the highest stock price. If you're talking about Google, um, so their incentives are not aligned. I see that word on one of your slides. Their their incentives are not aligned with ours in the general public, and they don't want as much regulation as we probably want. So, for example. Um, you know, Tesla doesn't want the U.S. government to say when and where and how it should use its driverless cars, but it's probably in our interest to make sure that they're as safe as possible before they're out there on the roads, um, you know, at scale, uh, possibly not safe enough. And, and so there's often a tension between the needs of the corporate and the needs of, of, of society. And I think that's no less true in AI than in any other domain.
0: A lot of people in Silicon Valley and in tech generally, and Gary, you know this better than I do. Very critical of government. They think they're slow and ignorant about technology. Where is government? Where are the regulators? Uh, Let let me finish your question. Where where are the regulators in terms of understanding AI? It's a very, very hard subject. Um, It attracts some of the smartest people in the world, like you. Are there people in in, in Washington DC who get it? Who we could trust perhaps more than Elon Musk or Google or OpenAI?
1: I mean, with Elon Musk, you might be setting the bar somewhat low, but um, <laughs> I, I, I think that that you know there, there are some smart people in Washington, but they're not typically trained in artificial intelligence. Um, there are you know at least a few good people that I know of, but by and large, this is not something that they're trained in. And part of the reason I wrote that book, Rebooting AI, was to try to teach people the issues. And as you say, they're they're not subtle. They're harder than rocket science. Um, and Elon Musk, I think, doesn't understand them. And I think a lot of people in government don't really understand them. The, the first um, issue that I think Elon Musk didn't really get is the importance of outliers, the, that there are always new and complicated cases um, in in interesting real, real world problems like driving. So I have been uh, saying out loud since 2016 in an interview um, with edge.org that driverless cars are really pretty hard. And every year, um, and, and emphasizing that the outlier problem is the key problem, these unexpected cases. And every year since 2016, pretty much, Elon Musk has said, "Well, we're going to have driverless cars next year." Um, and you know, all of his promises have so far not materialized. He promised we'd have a cross-country drive from Los Angeles to New York. That still hasn't happened. And this smart summon feature that just has your car go across the parking lot recently hit a parked jet on a on an airplane runway, um, a three and a half million dollar jet. You know, going. 20 feet. It couldn't, it couldn't see the jet and, and drove right into it. That's an outlier case because it wasn't in the database um, that the system uh, had been trained on. And so we continue to have those problems. I don't think people in the government necessarily are that up on the details either. I mean, it, most people, I think, treat artificial intelligence as if it was magic. If it was one size fits all universal solvent, You know, I'll take whatever problem, I'll pour in my data and out will come an an, out will come an answer. And the reality is that that kind of one-size-fits-all technique that we call deep learning works in some domains and doesn't work in other domains. Um, it depends on the nature of the problem. How safe it is depends on how, how much cost there is for error. There are lots of basic things that have not really penetrated the discourse. and Then you get to things like misinformation. And I think everybody realizes that there needs to be a solution, but most people don't know enough about AI even specify what that solution would look like. And so for a lot of ethical AI, like people talk about ethical AI, but there aren't so far a lot of principles with teeth to actually insist on it. So like Galactica, should that have been released, given that it's very capable of making up fake science that could influence people's beliefs? Well, there's no rule about that right now. There's some rules tentatively in Europe that might be relevant, but there's really not enough regulation. And I think there's not enough Uh, focus in the government around these issues, maybe because they seem like they're far off, but I'm not sure um, they're as far off as as the government thinks. Um, I think real strong AI that really understands the world is far away, but we have a kind of weak AI that's data-driven right now, that's here now, that's already causing some problems.
0: We had a historian on the show recently, uh, Michael Best. He believes there are four existential threats to humanity in the 21st century climate, pandemics, nuclear weapons, and artificial intelligence. Do you think that in the worst case scenario, AI represents an existential threat to humanity?
1: I think it's possible. I don't think anybody's ever given me a clear scenario for how that would happen. Most of the scenarios that I hear feel very science fictiony and not that plausible, but I don't think we can rule it out entirely either the more power that we give to our machines, the more risk that's involved. And the less that those machines really understand our values, the more we should be worried. And right now, machines don't really understand human values. And so that does make some potential risk. I don't think there's a huge amount of risk in the very near term for what people call existential threats, like wiping out all of humanity. I think the immediate threats are really about things like misinformation, which could lead to the rise of fascism, for example, which is a pretty serious problem, I think is much more imminent. And it doesn't depend on AI being cl- clever. It just depends on AI being widespread and, and um, spreading information.
0: Gary, you talk about the science fictional existential scenarios. The one that one often hears is the idea of AI thinking for itself which would result, some people believe, in us becoming essentially slaves to this new master race or master
1: machine.
0: Is that, in your scientific mind, is that purely science fictional or is it conceivable?
1: I put it in the very unlikely but conceivable. So there's never been any indication that machines have any interest in our lives or in doing anything other than we tell them. And so there's a giant gap in any story like that, which would be like, What gets the AI motivated enough to do that and empowered enough to do that? And I've never really heard an answer to it. But at the same time, like I always like this line from Prince, uh, which I'll slightly paraphrase, forever is a mighty long time. And so I can't tell you like what might happen in 500 years. I don't really know is is the honest truth. It's not an immediate concern, but it's fine that at least a few people in humanity want to worry about those kinds of things.
0: You have a wonderful pinned tweet, uh, Gary, uh, speaking about Twitter and Elon Musk. Hopefully you won't wreck that one as well. Um, You wrote, uh, let us invent then a new breed of AI systems that mix an awareness of the past with values that represent the future that we aspire to. Our focus should be on figuring on how to build AI that can represent and reason about values, quote unquote, rather than simply perpetuating past data. Explain that. It's it's a very it's it it's a very inspiring but also ambitious idea for AI.
1: So there's a few parts to it. The first is that what machines do right now is they just spit back the data that they've seen. And the data they've seen is often sloppy and biased and so forth. So if if you type in um uh, CEO in an image search program, you're probably going to get from its AI a lot of white males. In fact, more white males than actually are represented in CEOs, where we actually do have some female CEOs. But because things like movies will be in the data set, and the movies themselves are biased, you wind up with with this terrible cycle of perpetuating past bias. Um, and so that's kind of the first part of the quote. We want to stop doing that. What we really want is to have our values in there. Um, so the the last but our values happening.
0: are jumping in Gary. Uh, we don't all set, share the same values. There's politics. Some people think that we should have more female CEOs. Some people think we should have less.
1: It's true that there's some variation, but there's a lot that we actually agree on. So I mean, you could argue about that example, but I, I'm not sure people would, you know, disagree all that much. Um, you know, anybody who has a, a mother or a daughter or a sister um, would probably like, you know, at least their relative um, who is female to have an equal shot. Um, and then more generally, there, there are values like don't harm other people. Don't be dishonest. We don't want our, our robots to harm us. There's a lot of stuff we agree about, even though, yes, there is some slippery slope. But the, the reality is, for example, we have legal systems. None of them are perfect, but they're encodings of ethics that you know, we can more or less live with and are a lot better than anarchy. But the AI systems that we have are basically the moral equivalent of anarchy. They're completely without values, not even the values that we would universally agree on. And it's a serious problem with current AI that we can't put those in. So, I mean, just imagine a domestic robot like Optimus the Tesla is trying to put together. Um, and that system not even having a basic value like don't harm people. Um, you know, it could be complete chaos if we can't encode something like that.
0: We had another of your colleagues, I'm sure you know his work, Toby Walsh on the show. He has an interesting new book out, Machines Behaving Badly, The Morality of AI, covering similar similar territory to a lot of your work. He he suggested to me that if our superpower is what he calls human empathy, and I think he does believe that, then why are we teaching computers to be empathetic? Is that, in your view, uh, Gary, our superpower, empathy? Sherry Turkle... At MIT, she's an old friend of mine. She's been on the show several times talking about this superpower as well. How how does empathy fit into this in terms of, in your language, figuring out how we can build AI that represents values?
1: Well, I mean, empathy gets construed in different ways, and I'm not sure I want to take it on 100%, but I'll say... Like a lesser version of that, that I think is a minimum, which is we want the machines to understand our world and how we think about things. So, if you have a domestic robot and you say, "Clean up everything in the living room," you don't want the robot to like cut up your couch and put it in the closet. You want it to understand, like that some things are important to you. So, if you want to call that empathy, um, then then you know that's a light version of empathy or whatever. Um, we need machines to have that. We need to have them understand where we're coming from and how we think about things. Um, they don't necessarily have to have an emotional stance towards us, and that's where some of this starts maybe to get gray, but we do need them to know what we value and, and for us to have some say over what they value um, and for them to understand how we think about things, to understand our world. Um, you know, when you write something, for example, you, you need to think about what the reader might understand about something. Well, our machines need to understand what their users are doing if we're going to make them general intelligences. So, you know, Microsoft Excel doesn't need to understand anything about your needs and desires particularly, but a domestic robot needs to understand a lot about what it is that you actually might mean, even though you, you might say things in, in brief and concise ways.
0: I'm sure you've read Kazuo Ishiguro's uh, Clara and the Sun, a wonderful novel... I, I'm- I'm embarrassed
1: it. to say I have not oh, yeah. read it. I well, know about
0: it. Shouldn't but, admit that publicly, yeah. but uh, Gary, but uh, <laughs> you, you probably thought it all yourself. Uh, Ishiguro imagines a world where it's hard to distinguish between, shall we say, uh, empathetic comp- uh, machines and humans. In the ideal world that you're trying to map out, um, what's our role? Are we more and more moral? Could this represent a a new enlightenment, a new renaissance? Are we reshaping things to make ourselves more or less central to the future?
1: It's an interesting question. I I would say that one thing that we ought to be doing, we're not really ready to do, but that should be a, a byproduct or a focus of... AI is building machines that help us think more clearly. So um, people might know, for example, from Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky's work about all the cognitive biases that human beings uh, face. So for example, confirmation bias, noticing evidence uh, that supports our own theories and and not noticing evidence that goes against our theories. Machines could really help us to be better people. um, I think in the long run, if they could teach critical reasoning, assist us in, in careful reasoning, um, that doesn't necessarily go to the centrality that you ask for, but I think it does go to the morality. I think it's a way in which machines might actually help us to uh, achieve our moral ambitions better by, by calling us on things. Uh, I think that's possible. It's not possible with current technology, um, but it might be eventually.
0: You talk about cognitive bias. We've done a number of shows on that as well. Beamer, Amanatha, an executive who believes that AI can solve the problem of diversity, making sure that we hire diverse people rather than just people who reflect ourselves. Is that the kind of cognitive bias that you're relatively optimistic about in terms of AI making the world a better place?
1: Uh, Long-term, yes, short-term, no. I mean, I think that's my answer to a lot of these questions is, I'm long-term optimistic about AI. People often call me an AI critic, but I I love AI. Uh, it's just that I don't think it's up to scratch yet. I think that a lot of these problems are solvable, but that we really need to restructure how we're doing the research right now if we're going to make progress. So I don't think current techniques, for example, can help with that issue. Um, I, th- I think you know there are a lot of limits uh, on the current techniques because they don't have values, don't have a way of directly encoding those values, don't even understand what bias is. And so it's hard um, to use the current technologies to address these questions but I think they're eminently solvable in the long run.
0: Is your pessimism about the short term, does that make you a minority within the AI community or are there a lot of other guys like you? I know Jerome Lanier is an old friend of mine. I think he's pretty much in your camp. Is there a, an int- is there a, a fairly passionate debate going on amongst AI experts about this short term versus medium or long term potential?
1: There is. I mean, you could see that even this week with Galactica, there were a whole bunch of us saying to Facebook or Meta, um, hold on, you haven't really thought through the implications of this. It doesn't work nearly as well. well you're as not your alone story. with
0: Meta. They don't think through the, uh... It only survived three days online. So Galactica, that, right? That,
1: that's right. Well, so I was going to refer to things that are described in that article. I'm quoted in that article. Um, Grady Booch who's a, uh, uh, software right. This is engineer. an
0: article from WIRE from, from the MIT Technology Review.
1: That's right. That came out today. I, they quote a, a piece of mine, um, which I think is called A Few Words About Bullshit, which is um, about essentially what Galactica is able to generate. Um, Emily Bender is quoted in there. Um, five or six of us who are, are kind of the resistance in a way um, are quoted there. And Jan McCoon, who who's at MedAI, I think doesn't really get it, doesn't understand why the rest of us are worried about the misinformation that this can generate, um, worried about the reliability of it and so forth. Um, I think he's, he Kuhn is being a bit tone deaf about it. And in this case, I think probably more people in the field were on my side than on his side. Um, I think a lot of people were, were pretty worried that this was released into the wild very prematurely. Um, And there's, you know, back and forth on, on lots of different issues. I'm probably one of the most vocal critics of, What's going on in current AI, um, but I'm certainly not alone there either. I think most people who worked in classical AI see that the current uh, approaches are not really addressing uh, a, a lot of really foundational deep issues. So, you know, I, I'm willing to put myself out there. I say what I believe, and I maybe do that more than some other people do. Um, and, and so, I think I'm regarded as a leader in in characterizing. Uh, the limitations, but I'm by no stretch at all alone in this.
0: Yeah, and with with Meta, I mean, there's this impatience to grasp the future before it's happened because they're a business, as you indicated earlier. I wonder, this impatience about AI, is it also with Meta bound up with their impatience with virtual reality, with the metaverse? Is that as much a pipe dream as AI in some ways, in your view, and are they connected
1: well, I mean, the first thing is their stock price has gone down, what is it, two-thirds or three-quarters um, from its peak. So they're, they're certainly you know, wanting to, to make some kind of big show, and it, it's clear that the metaverse is not it, at least for now. You know, the long-term view on the metaverse might be relatively positive, but it may be that the current technologies don't really support it. So you have problems of... Um, Just sheer technical problems like the graphics aren't that exciting to people. You have social problems. There's not enough people doing it. So you go onto one of these um, meta worlds and there's no way to play with and that's boring. Um, So, I mean, it's a range of issues from technical and still people get nauseous in the glasses and the high quality glasses are expensive. Um, And so there are kind of technical and economic issues. And then there are social issues like you need a critical mass. And if the critical mass isn't there, then it's just not that much fun. And mo- most of the you know recent articles where people have tried these things out in, the, in uh, the press have come to the conclusion that, yeah, there's something interesting there, but it's not really that exciting yet. There's also like a content moderation problem of like, you know, I, I go there and then there are a bunch of really obnoxious 15-year-old boys who aren't very nice to me and it's no fun. Um, there's been a lot of reports sort of like that. And so like it's a whole world that I don't know if it needs to be literally policed, but it needs to be socialized. And it's not really. It's being put together by engineers who don't seem to have very good solutions to those problems. Does that mean they're insuperable in the long run? I don't think so. But you know, it's hard to predict a time course for when this might be more common. And, you know, how much does that depend on hardware? How much does it depend on like killer apps that everybody wants to play? How much of it is on the economics? Like. You know, if today's $1,500 glasses were $100, would everybody buy them? Would that change things? I don't really know the answer. And then I guess a piece that I could speak to is you're probably going to need a lot of non-player characters to keep things interesting. And the reality is we don't have the language AI yet good enough to make that piece of it work. So that's yet another kind of technical rate limiting step that I think is going to be there for a while.
0: Gary, you did your PhD at MIT with uh, Stephen Pinker. He was the um, he was your advisor. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. to me as if you share his optimism. Is that fair? <laughs> I'm not suggesting you're a pessimist, but you're not in the Pinker camp. When it but it seems to me, I mean, maybe I'm maybe maybe I'm being unfair or fair that. Um, Pinker makes this argument that things are continually improving and most people complain all the time. Do you share his general optimism about the future of of the world?
1: I don't. Um, I mean, I I don't actually know quite where his head's on that in the last uh, several months. But, um, you know, I'm concerned about the rise of fascism around the world. I'm concerned about uh, the scale of misinformation that we're likely to encounter soon. I don't think we learned our lessons around the pandemic or around climate change. Um, I think there are things to be worried about. There are some things that are clearly better. So, you know, the average healthcare state is is much better than it was 400 years ago. There's no question about that. The level of violence is definitely reduced relative to 400 years ago. I mean, you know, to the extent that Pinker's argument is that we're better off living now than we were living 400 years ago, I think I agree with that. Um, but you know, some of his work recently is about the kind of age of enlightenment and, and there are, are pressures pushing back against that. And some of it's a bet about like how hard you think those pressures are going to push and, and, and how far they're going to go. Um, and yeah, he's, I think temperamentally more of an optimist than I am.
0: One of the, I think one of the, the very optimistic things about you is you still believe in writing. You mentioned your, uh, your piece, a few words about bullshit. You have, uh, uh, a Substack, which you put out your thoughts. You're not just the author of Rebooting AI, but of many other books: The Birth of the Mind, Cludge, and uh, the iconic Guitar Zero. Writing is is an important activity for you, even if I'm guessing your day job. I mean, you're a, you're an entrepreneur, you're an executive, and you're a scientist. Where does writing fit in for you, particularly? given your interest in AI and your critique of, uh, of, of of platforms like DALI, which supposedly will enable all of us to become artists or writers?
1: Um, I mean, I guess I write for more than one reason. Sometimes I write for therapy because I'm irritated about things. So my most popular piece in that substack, I've been doing the substack for six months, um, was called Nonsense on Stilts. And that was um, an essay about Blake Lemoyne, who thought that um, uh, lambda was sentient and you know, something like eighty thousand. Yeah, this is the
0: Google uh, engineer who they fired. The Google right? engineer.
1: Yeah, and and you know I wrote that. And piece that's what and Mitchell
0: got fired over, wasn't it, or was that before that?
1: No, I mean she was fired before that. Although there the, there is some complex relation in there. Um, the. So sometimes, like, I, I write because I just need to, like, process something. It's almost catharsis. Um, sometimes it's because I want to explain things to other people, and I just enjoy it. I, it's it's a fun thing for me to do, to take some complex idea and try to explain it to other people in in some, you know, reasonable number of words. It's kind of like other people would do a crossword puzzle. It, it, it's kind of my version of of crossword puzzles. And, and you know, I, I do it pretty compulsively. Like, I, I really enjoy doing it. Um, And people like my pieces. And so I keep writing them.
0: Could generative AI help the writer? Is it necessarily the enemy? Or could we, like a good chess player, uh, team up with the machine to make ourselves into even better writers?
1: I think it's possible. I think the state of it right now is that people are actually using it for things like writing fake blogs in order to fool search engine optimization, SEO optimization. And so that practical purposes are not really towards great writing. They don't do anything that's like super innovative. Um, And they have all these problems of confabulation and honesty that like the Galactica system that I just described is a generative writer. Um, And so if you care about the quality of the product that you're creating, um, I don't think there are such great tools for that. I think if you want to make a plagiarized or semi-plagiarized like Um, essay for a high school paper you don't feel like writing, then it's probably a useful tool for that. But I'm not sure that's what we should be um, empowering as a society. Um, There probably will be some value in it. There's definitely value in the art stuff. So, um, you know, particularly if you want to do like surreal art, um, people will build plugins or working on plugins for Photoshop and stuff like that. So, you know, if you have some vision that you want realized, it's going to help you with that. At least for me, I don't think it's going to help me with my writing that much. Um, it's going to be inaccurate. It's not really going to help me express things in new ways. Uh, so, you know, since I already know how to write, I don't find that much value. For someone who is afraid to write, which is not me, although it was me at one point in my life, um, it, it might be of some value. I would, at this point, say, though, watch it like a hawk. And, you know, it, it's very easy for it to make things that sound kind of right and you have to look very carefully and realize that what it's saying is actually nonsense and so you have to be a very good editor if you want the end product to be any good
0: a few words in other words about bullshit from gary marcus gary uh, just as you're a keen writer i'm guessing you're a keen reader um do you spend a lot of time with other people's work do you like books, other people's substacks, tweets? What do you find the most value in reading other people's work?
1: I read a lot of tweets because they're kind of up to the minute analysis of a lot of people seeing what they think about. Um, I read a lot of books. I don't read as many essays, long form essays probably as I used to, but certainly in my life, I've read a ton. You know, I think a lot of my sensibilities about writing came from uh, reading The New Yorker, and then ultimately for a while, I blogged for The New Yorker and, and you know learned a lot about writing in that way. Um, I think in the internet era, my reading is much more spread out than it used to be, like in terms of like some of its tweets, some of its short articles, some of its um, you know, if less of it is books, I'm afraid. I think some of that comes out of my my budget for uh, reading books. Um, but you know, I read pretty broadly, but maybe not in the same way as I did before the internet era.
0: And so finally, any, any books or, or Twitter accounts that you would recommend our viewers and listeners to follow or read that you've read or followed recently that you think is particularly valuable on top of your own work?
1: Um, well, I'm in the midst of reading Merlin Sheldrake's book about fungi. I, I can't quite remember, um, the title, but that's a fabulous book, um, I loved Richard Powers' uh, Overstory. was a fiction book, was fantastic. You know, rightfully won the the Pulitzer. Um, So those would be a, a couple that I read, or am in the midst of reading right now. I guess both on a on a nature theme.